Episode 626 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hi, Ben. Hi. Hi. Later in the show, Sahadev will be talking to Jordan Bastian of MLB.com. And uh, before that, we will be talking to Brian Joyner, who is a writer living in Brooklyn and the author of this year's Indians essay in the BP Annual. Hi, Brian. Hello. Hey, before we talk about the Indians, I want to ask both of you about Chris Young striking off a pitching machine today. Did you guys see that Chris Young struck out against a pitching machine today? <laughs> I did not. I they did played, not. They played an intra-squad game, and um, they used a pitching machine instead of a pitcher. Um, and uh, so a bunch of New York writers were tweeting the results as they happened. Uh, which seems like a hysterically unnecessary thing. Like that seems like taking spring training, uh, live tweeting, to an, uh, an an uncomfortable place, like man versus machine kind of place. Um, New York then, writers taking spring training to an uncomfortable place. And then, but then things happened. A <laughs> like, Rod went over to, uh, which doesn't uh, is is amusing. I think that would be worth tweeting. And maybe not quite worth discussing on here. But then Chris Young struck out. And I just wonder if either of you have any insight uh, into whether this is as hysterical as it sounds. I mean, I guess a pitching machine is not a T. And I would imagine pitching machine technology these days is pretty impressive, right? I mean, with nanotechnology and stuff out there in the world, there's probably pitching machines that are almost... Uh, almost sentient, but I don't know if they're sequencing pitches. I don't know how the framing was. I don't know. Is there a a catching machine, do you think? (laughs) They have those pitching machines where the ball comes out of a thing that looks like an actual pitcher, where Uh you see a wind-up and video. Which pitcher, though, does it look like? I think you can customize it. Jeff Karstens, you can get one that's like Jeff Karstens. Yeah, to warm up, you you do the Karstens image first. Uh, Well, it's Funny, funny that it was Chris Young, right? Because Chris Young strikes out a lot against real pitchers, so you'd figure that he'd be a leading candidate to strike out against a fake one. I think it's great because this is—it definitely lends some uh, viability to the fact that it was covered because he will be remembered for this forever. You're not going to forget it. I'm not going to forget it. It's kind of great. Yeah, it's true. He will be remembered for something other than being the other Chris Young. Uh-huh. Uh, Although uh, Chris Young, both probably. That's maybe the one thing they have in common. Besides their name, they probably both would strike out against a pitching machine. Do you, I, I guess a big question would be, do they set this pitching machine up to only throw strikes? Because if they're only throwing strikes, it seems like hitting would be incredibly... If you imagine a world of baseball that was like bumper bowling, where every pitch was in the strike zone, it would be pretty easy, right? Like uh, almost, almost hitting, everybody would, would hitting be Hitting awesome. against Phil Hughes was hard. And that was the same thing. Uh, so Phil Hughes didn't get many chases. Is that what you're saying? No. I mean, oh. I know he was around the strike zone, but 
Yeah. There still is the the uh, uncertainty of whether you're supposed to swing or not. That seems to be the hardest part of hitting to me is the mm-hmm. uncertainty mm-hmm. of whether to swing because everybody does pretty well in the strike zone. Almost everybody's a pretty good hitter in the strike zone, right? Yeah, sure. There's there's no there were no pictures of this pitching machine. They're terrible spring training pictures of everything. I didn't see, but there probably were. I I didn't. I'm sorry. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't look. Okay. I'm gonna look to see what Phil Hughes's uh, <laughs> zone zone rate was, though. I think um, it was like seventy percent. Yeah, it was sixty-two uh, percent. Yeah. Okay. And the real so, question, the real question is whether a pitching machine can hit the strike zone more often than Bartolo Colon. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> if you put them right next to each other. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, uh, 35% of pitches that Hughes threw out of the strike zone were swung at. So mm-hmm. you figure that's a huge part of his value because I imagine that hitters did terribly on those, and I imagine they did pretty well on the ones in the zone. Well, hopefully there will be more reporting on this. I look to I look to you guys, hopefully. <laughs> One of you should follow up, please, and write a long, exhaustive piece. All right, on to the Indians. Um, I wanted to ask you about the division because um, – it is a very different division right now than it has been for most of the Indians last, you know, five years. In, in the past five years, it has generally been that the Tigers were good, and everybody else was seen to be fairly flawed, and um, the Indians were, you know, usually around the second best team in that group, uh, or at least preseason they were. And now the Tigers are are quite flawed. They they lost a lot. They got older. Um, they have various problems with the club that haven't really been addressed and I think Pakoda projects them to win something like 82 games and win the division so on the one hand you could say oh it's easier than it's ever been for the Indians to make the playoffs on the other the Royals and the White Sox are both very credible teams uh, and could very easily win you know 93 there's nothing with four good teams you're much more likely probably to have one outperform their projections by a great deal and, and make it difficult. So do you think that uh, the division being what it is now, very balanced and yet perhaps a higher floor, uh, is good or bad news for the Indians? I think it's good news, um, and I think it's good news because of how they're constructed. They didn't have a lot of flexibility this offseason, and offseason flexibility tends to uh, get headlines. It's you know It's easy to write about when teams need to make moves to improve. But at least in the division, the Tigers got noticeably stripped of some assets and uh, some of them are just depreciating. Uh, the White Sox obviously retooled quite a bit, but if Chris Sale, Chris Sale keeps stepping on things, um, that works in the Indians' favor. The Royals are the Royals, and I just can't, you know, maybe they'll do that again, maybe they won't. But the Indians seem, and I wrote about this a lot in the essay, that it's not just that they would be sort of considered equal potential favorites with the other teams. It's that they're really built really well um, to sort of be down low better than the other ones because of just the the sheer number of players they have in their prime um, who might all just make a little step upward which has a big effect across the board whereas the the White Sox um, seems like they have gotten some guys who they're counting on them to be good in order to to try to take the division where the Indians sort of just need to do exactly what they did but just a little bit better across the board so I think it's actually this is good for them 
What was the most gratifying surprise season on the Indians last year? It's it's kind of interesting that they, they came pretty close, and you can play this game of, you know, Jason Kipnis didn't hit, man, if he had hit, or if Swisher had stayed healthy, or if, you know, Rayburn and Board and Murphy had done anything, they totally would have been there. And yet, on the opposite side of the spectrum, there are these individual breakouts or surprise seasons that must have been quite gratifying. So, what, I mean, what was the the most heartwarming of the Indian success stories last year out of, say, Kluber and Brantley and maybe Carlos Carrasco even? Well, I would say if you're talking heartwarming, it's probably Carrasco because he's – and the Indians have a lot of these guys who are pitchers who are sort of you know second-chance prospects even though they're still young. Um, and I think that's a side effect of us being really informed about these players when they're really young, that it seems, I mean, when they're even younger, so that now when they rebound, it seems like they've been around for a long time and they're really quite young. But Carrasco, I mean, he was, he was as good as Kluber down the stretch, um, if not better, which is amazing because Kluber was incredible. He won the Cy Young and that, uh, (laughs) that's great. He had been good the year before he hadn't been that good so it didn't quite come out of nowhere I think Brantley's season was really nice um, in in a way it's sort of I, I get the vibe of the, the really good Jacoby Ellsbury season for the Red Sox um, that he's still a very good player but it, to ask him to put up those numbers again seems unlikely if he did it, does it that's great but if Carrasco can be anything like what he was at the end of last year that's both great for the team and it's just a really good story it's such a weird team because uh, it feels like the narrative is oh my gosh look at these amazing you know look at how good they are at scouting look at how amazing their coaches are and a year earlier when we had uh the the essay in the bp annual a year earlier for the indians was all about well a lot of it was about mickey calloway and how he was this uh he was the new hot pitching coach and how great he had done with that step and it's amazing to think that we ran that essay the year before Kluber and the year before Carrasco, when now it just seems so much clearer that they coached or something happened to these guys that made them superstars, right? And so you, you like that, you want that to be the narrative. And then you look at how many, how everybody who was supposed to be good on the team was terrible. Their five highest paid players produced seven tenths of a win, on, according to Baseball Reference. That doesn't include Kipnis, who was. Uh, a huge disappointment for them as well. Given, I mean, is this a? I, I'm like, there's this way that they that these things wash out. Um, that Gomes and Kluber and Brantley and Carrasco are undone by Swisher and Bourne and Kipnis and Masterson. But is it a net positive or a net negative uh, to have both these things happen? I, I guess which I'm. I guess what I'm saying is, which do you think regresses? more or which regresses more reliably the good guys outperforming or the bad guys underperforming uh, i think that the, the bad guys have a much better chance to at least contribute anything for a few reasons one it's just the good guys are going to take up more of the the spaces as you know as time goes on the expensive mistakes if they can shelve them um they will i do think there's a decent chance that nick swisher does anything i mean he's it wouldn't surprise me if he did nothing, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did anything. And if he does anything, that's good for the team. Um, I think just more reliably, the guys 
who have been doing well and who are cheap are just in the at the ages where they're probably going to continue to do it. Uh, you know, the the Bourne and the Swisher contracts are just bad. Um, I think one one player who you're talking about the pitching coach who who was down low sneaky good was Bauer um, who is another guy who was definitely sort of written off uh, out of Arizona and he was always accused of sort of being in his own head and he's definitely the best rap rock pitcher on the uh, rap rock artist who also pitches for the Indians but he put up a really he put up a good season last year for a 23 year old and it's not just the guys who are young last year versus the guys who are expensive this year because I feel like the expensive guys are capped because they can't sign anybody else and they couldn't do much worse. Uh, and if they did, you pull them. And they still have younger guys coming up. So that's why I feel that the young guys have a much better chance to push them up a few wins more than the expensive uh decrepit guys can pull them down going forward can't believe trevor bauer was 23 last year i would have guessed 25 and i wouldn't have been surprised at 26 yeah to build a drone as sophisticated as the one that he built at his age is impressive so you can kind of play an after april game with the indians they were one of the best teams in baseball after april they had the best record in the central after april and you can kind of do that with individual players, too. And one of those guys is Danny Salazar, who was expected to be great, was great down the stretch in 2013, and started very poorly, went back to AAA, came back up, and in the second half was not bad. So is more of the not bad second half Salazar a realistic uh, expectation? Yeah, I think it's tough. It's a... Uh... He's older than Trevor Bauer, which is, just doesn't doesn't make sense to me, just because of the way sort of track their careers. Um, but he's still young, um, and he obviously throws for a lot of strikeouts. I think that the main what the Indians have done well uh, is just they have a volume of these guys. And as I said in the essay, if two out of three of Carrasco, Bauer, and Salazar can just take little steps forward. Kluber is going to be great. I mean, that's he's going to be great. Um, so I can't, you know, I don't know if Salazar is going to be uh, as good as he was down the stretch. It's it's possible. He, I mean, he was such a disaster at the beginning of last year that it's hard to discount that happening again. Just because if you're that bad once, you can be that bad again. But I think that they're just playing a, a numbers game, and you know, they have good guys lined up behind that too in case Salazar blows up or you know decent enough guys i think he'll probably be not as good as he was down the stretch but i think he'll be something like what bauer was last year which is for uh for a fourth starter that's perfectly fine mm-hmm. and what about the defense because you can also play another alternate history game to get the 2014 indians into the playoffs that the indians had had an average defense, they they might have made the playoffs. In the in the plain dealer, you might read that they had the most errors in the league. Uh, you might read elsewhere that they had the worst UZR in the league or the worst defensive run save total in the league or one of the worst defensive efficiencies in the league. And all of those things are true. So we've seen some teams kind of do a stealth offseason makeover and improvement by shifting some guys around and getting better at defense 
in kind of an unheralded way. Are the Indians going to be one of those teams? Is there any reason to think that that they're going to be a, a significantly improved fielding team this year? Well, they'll call up Lindor, and he will he will catch every ball in every part of the field. So that will solve <laughs> that problem all at once. Uh, I mean, I do feel like Lindor is is the. Um, it's hard to say one person is going to make such a huge defensive impact, but the Indians certainly need. Uh, <laughs> if they're going to have a great glove, shortstop is a great place for it. Yeah, I mean, they're not. They're still not great. They're still not great, and. That will be an Achilles heel. Their strike, their pitchers do throw a lot of strikeouts. Um, uh, and if Salazar, we're just talking about him, if he can continue to, to throw more than a strikeout per inning, that you know that that mitigates that mitigates the problem a little bit. I don't know if you know if Lindor comes up and is good. I mean, he'll be great at defense. That's never a problem uh, for him. I don't know if their defense would be bad enough to hold them back with if if they make slight improvements offensively across the board. It's certainly an area of concern. The Indians haven't really seen the Michael Board that they signed, and there have been some spring training comments this year from Terry Francona about how he hopes to see the aggressive speedster Board at some point this season. Is that completely unrealistic? I mean, is it, you know, he's over 30 and he's had hamstring stuff and and at this point he's just not going to be the Michael Bourne that they got from the Braves? Well, I think that, you know, Francona is a, <laughs> he's a, he's a good manager in the sense that he knows, I think that he's a smart guy. He knows what he's saying. I think that this could be a, sort of an appeal to him, a backward to go forward thing <laughs> in the sense that you Michael Bourne is just, he's a lot of lost money. But if you can get him to do one or two things really well, maybe you'll get some something out of him because you're paying him either way. I don't know if it means anything. It probably doesn't. You know, it just be, it just became March two days ago. And this is when everyone is, you know, everyone's in the best shape of their life, except for maybe Pablo Sandoval. But everyone else is in the best shape of their life. Chris Young. Um, Chris Young, <laughs> right. I I just don't. If they got anything from Michael Bourne, they would, they'll be sitting pretty. But I just I wouldn't count on it. Mm-hmm. So we've talked to a couple of teams writers this offseason uh, about teams that seem to have maybe had too much continuity in their front office. That uh, they've had the same guys there for, for decades. And there are signs maybe that those guys or that that uh, front office's mindset might perhaps be stale or might be hampering their ability to... Uh, to sort of think outward when they're hiring new new people and, and that sort of a thing. Um, the Indians have essentially had kind of one regime in a way for almost three decades now. Mark Shapiro was there uh, during the John Hart reign, was promoted from within. Chris Antonetti's been there since 1999, was promoted from within. And yet this is a club that seems to be uh, always, even through all three of those front offices, always sort of cutting edge, innovative, creative, and they've managed to keep Cleveland, which is a very small market and not a great desirable market for players, I would imagine, uh, from ever falling into that decade-long funk that we've seen from other small markets. Do you see any indication that this is a front office that is 
I don't know, repeating itself or prone to um, to the same mistakes or maybe unambitious because they've all been comfortable and cozy in the same office for decades. Is there any of that apparent? And um, is it something to, to be worried about going forward at all? You know, I'm actually more, I'm surprised at how well they've uh, adapted given how long they've been around. Like the, the Gomes contract, which is just, you know, six years, $23 million, uh, and it before last year and that is not you know that's very much the new style of contract um or a newer style uh uh going back to um excuse me um going back to longoria types you know it's just the way it's not an old the the born and swisher contracts were bad and that is i don't know if if that's if those were anything they were certainly bad and they are certainly possibly representative of old thinking, especially in the Bourne case. But I don't see, I see more systematically good decisions now, sort of as the system has changed too, uh, to more benefit teams like the Indians. And I feel like they're working in lockstep with the system that's getting closer to them. And they've, you know, they've hovered. You've said that they've been good. They've been good, but they've never, I mean, they've, they were one game away from the World Series in 2007, and that's as good as they've been. I think that this team has a chance to be better than that team, regardless of how far they get. And I think that this team, the way it's built, has a chance to be competitive for the next few years, uh, especially in the AL Central if the Tigers fall off a little bit and if the Royals regress. You know, those wins have to go somewhere. And I think that that... Uh, I don't see a, a stagnation of ideas there. I, I think that they've adapted pretty well to, to the new reality. The A's get a lot of credit for mixing and matching players and getting guys who can play multiple positions and finding a way to have the platoon advantage as often as possible. We haven't talked about the Brandon Moss move so much, but that was one guy who helped them pull off that approach. But the Indians do an even better job of that. If anything, they they lead the league in the percentage of plate appearances in which their hitters have the platoon advantage. How do they do that or or what do you to what do you credit that assuming it's it's a positive? Is it more of a a roster construction thing where they just happen to have guys who who fit that way or do you give Francona credit for finding ways to fit people in a in a complimentary way no i mean i'm sure it's 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 intentional i'm sure and they probably don't get as much press as the a's because they don't try to sell half their team in the offseason um and i think that gets people the a's end up being a lightning rod uh you know not not really but as far as these things still happen it's always noticeable what the A's do, even if they didn't do what they did this offseason and have what I called the juice cleanse offseason. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the Indians are doing that really well, and uh, I'm sure it's on purpose. You know, Francona, he worked with the Red Sox guys. You know, he he knows the the matchups. He knows the numbers. I'm yeah, they're doing it on purpose, and it, it works well. And uh, getting Moss certainly plays into that i think they you know i think that they've just been doing a lot of the things that smart teams have been doing and uh and it's been very quiet i think that this year is the year that it might stop being quiet 
especially if the division is strong and they're still good, I think it'll be even more obvious. All right. And that takes us to the prediction. Tell us how many wins they will have and given how strong the division is, where that will place them in that division. I'm going to say that they will get 90 wins and win the division because I think the division will be a fight really with the White Sox, Royals, and Tigers. They're all going to be scrapping, but I think the Indians will be be on top of it. I really do. All All right. right. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you. All right. People can find Brian on Twitter at Brian Joyner. That's Brian with a Y. And I should say that's Joiner without a Y. That's J O I N E R, not Oh, well not yes. Like, not like Wally Joiner with a <laughs> yes, Y. Yes. So the Y is in the first name. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, well we will have another team preview podcast later this week. Who's who's our next team preview podcast? Do you know? Um, uh, is it the Marlins? I think it's the Marlins, I think, right? I think you're right. I think it is the Marlins. But we'll have a listener email show in between. It is the Marlins. All right. This Indians preview podcast is not over, however. There is a second segment. After the upcoming musical break, you will hear Sahadev speaking to Jordan Bastion of MLB.com. Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, Associate Editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Jordan Bastian, Cleveland Indians beat writer for MLB.com. Thanks for joining me, Jordan. Hey, no problem. How are you doing? Doing great, doing great. And I got to say, I, I think the Indians are going to do pretty great this year, too. Uh, I'm really optimistic about this season. Uh, I think Jonah Carey just came out with his top 30 teams and had them at fifth. So I'm not alone in that as far as uh, as far as baseball writers go. Is there a buzz as far as fans go? Is the media Does the media have high expectations? I'm, I'm sure the team does. The team should. They're, they're very talented. But what about what about the fans and, and you guys? Are you guys expecting big things from the Indians? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting dynamic because I think back in Cleveland, um, the offseason really didn't seem to go over that well just because there wasn't uh, a lot of movement. You know, fans obviously a lot of times really want to be that fan base where your team wins the winter. You know, there's a lot of buzz coming out of Chicago and some other places, you know, especially with all the movement within the division. I think there was kind of uh, you'd get the sense just from people writing into me and on Twitter that, you know, they wanted the Indians to do more. But then you, you talk to the team here, you know, those of us who got the get to watch this team every day um, and kind of get to know these players and get to have an appreciation for some of the core talent that's developing here. You know, it's, you watch right now, it's kind of like they're the, they're the sabermetric darlings of the moment. And um, it's been kind of fun seeing some of the publications that have come out and, you know, listing them pretty high in the power rankings or in the projections. And I think a lot of that is obviously based uh, as you know, on the starting rotation and what they did in the second half last year and, some of the projections that you could put on a guy like Corey Kluber coming off the year he had, Carlos Carrasco uh, with the two dynamic months that he had last year, which just totally rewrote the the script on what his career had been to that point. And obviously guys like Trevor Bauer uh, were starting to establish themselves and uh, Danny Salazar and TJ House coming up. You know, there's a lot of talent within that rotation. And 
you know, for a team that, you know, really relies on pitching, uh, I think that's one of the main reasons um, they're pretty excited here. Uh, a lot of it is potential. There's question marks at every single slot in that rotation. Um, but I think that the, the potential is there and the talent's there, and that's why you're seeing right now that, yeah, I think there's a, a buzz that's growing gradually, but, uh, you know, it's this team's starting to get a little more national attention, and, you know, despite kind of the relatively quiet winter that they did have. I wrote about the Indians earlier this offseason, and mm-hmm. and one of the – when I was asking around uh, with people I know, scouts and front office people, two names that kept popping up were Ross Adkins and Steve Lubrotich, and I, that's their uh, – that's pro scouting and player development were the two keys to this current roster. Have they been – is that – I mean, I'm assuming that's something that you guys in, in Cleveland have known, that these guys have done a great job. Is that Have they been getting their due credit in Cleveland? Yeah, you know, I think I think what where they're getting credit are those smaller moves, which if I'm remembering yeah. correctly, I believe that's what you're writing about. And um, you know, the, if you look at a lot of the core players on this team right now, Corey Kluber, Michael Brantley, uh, Carlos Santana, you know, a lot of these guys came in some you know kind of less heralded trades uh, where they were minor league players and not really top prospects necessarily. Um, some of these guys. But they've really rose to prominent roles, and you know it's a, it's pretty surprising when you go around the the major league roster right now how many of them um, were acquired via trade, and not necessarily in big blockbuster trades. So I think back in Cleveland, some of the pessimism that comes out is stemming from you know when they traded back to back Cy Young winners and some of the big packages that they got that. You know, you didn't see that immediate uh, return, although a guy like Carlos Carrasco is starting to salvage that and a guy like Prantley is starting to salvage that. Um, you know, but it's, I think, yeah, there is this track record that on these smaller deals, um, there's been a lot of success uh, and, and guys that not only have turned into, uh, you know, league average type guys, but guys that are kind of developing into to core players. Think about Jan Gomes. I mean, this Jan mm-hmm. Gomes was an added Really, when you think about that trade, you know, Terry Francona really wanted to get Mike Avilas um, because Avilas, with his versatility and playing all over the field, in the infield and the outfield, you know, really gives Francona that flexibility to carry an eighth reliever, which is something that he has a high priority on. Um, and so Jan Gomes was a player that was blocked at the time by J.P. Aaron Sibia and uh, uh, Darno was still there in Toronto, and he was kind of – projected as a utility guy by the Blue Jays. And Kevin Cash, who was in their front office at the time, came over, uh, was the bullpen coach here in Cleveland for the last two seasons, and he really pushed for, hey, you know, I think Jan Gomes could be a catcher. I think that's a prime example of the type of uh, players that the Indians can identify through their scouting and things like that and, you know, can kind of – that they've developed into star players and guys that they're signing to extensions and kind of building that core that um, has got this team in a good position right now. Yeah, Jan Gomes is uh, kind of the reason I wrote that piece because I, I'm just <laughs> I've been so fascinated by him. I I hadn't even heard of him, and then all of a sudden he's he's uh, you know one of these guys that just kind of pops up out of nowhere, and and then I realized wow this whole Cleveland team is like that. It seems like just just a bunch of guys that you didn't expect to be at a star level uh, playing at a really high level. If if you had to pick from you know let's let's go look at that trio of Brantley, Kluber, and Gomes, and if you want to even add in Carrasco because he had a pretty like like you mentioned, a pretty fantastic two months. If you have to pick from that, that foursome, who, who are you most confident can 
you know, I, I guess it may be hard to repeat seasons like that or stay at that peak level, but, you know, really stay at a, at a high level of production. Yeah, I think Brantley, given his extremely high contact rate and some of the strides he made in terms of approach last year, being a lot more aggressive earlier in the count, realizing that he didn't need to be um, a leadoff hitter type batter, um, where he felt like in the past he was seeing pitches for the sake of seeing pitches. Um, he's kind of realized last year that he didn't have to do that. You know, if he saw that pitch, just go after it. And you can look at the the trends of uh, pitches that he'd see per plate appearance and how often he attacked early in the count. Um, it really did uh, increase last year. And then all of a sudden you've got a 200-hit player um, in a really remarkable season. And granted, there's a lot, lot more that goes into it than just that, but that played a big role. But he's been consistently, steadily improving from year to year. And I just think that high contact rate, one of the best in the game, really lends itself um, to consistency over the course of the next several seasons. Uh, that's the Contact rate isn't something that really goes away. And then a guy like Corey Kluber, I mean, he's hitting his prime right now. He's, I think he's going to be 29 this year, still under control for four more seasons by this team. Um, it's pretty remarkable the changes he made to his repertoire uh, in the high minor leagues in 2011 with the Indians. And, you know, the picture you're seeing right now in terms of the, the arsenal that he has and the usage that he does is totally different than when he was coming up with the Padres and earlier in his Indians minor league career. I think what we saw last year and in 2013 to a certain extent before his finger injury, you know, really all kind of, again, kind of lends itself to consistency over time where, yeah, he was a power pitcher with the strikeout rates last year, but he also has that mentality of a pitch to contact, you know, if that's what they're they're going to do. So I feel like he's a guy who over time um, will still be able to adjust in terms of, you know, as they say, pitching instead of throwing you know, learning to adjust and make those adaptations kind of reminds me uh, in many ways of when I covered Roy Halladay up in Toronto, you know, a guy who could rack up the strikeouts, but if guys weren't going to try to ambush him early in the count, you know, he'd just have that two-seamer and rack up the ground balls and be perfectly content on not striking out guys. Uh, and I see a lot of the same thing in Kluber's uh, approach as well. I think there's more uh, of a sample with those two guys uh, to kind of project to, you know, maybe having consistency over the next few years, you know, a guy like Carrasco, I mean, before August of last season, you know, I really wasn't sure I ever wanted to see him as a starting pitcher ever again. Uh, and then he, he kind of changed his mentality uh, in the bullpen. Uh, Kevin Cash uh, gets brought up again here, um, really altered his routine out of the pen, you know, helped him learn that he could rely on his slider more or be more of a power pitcher. And he pitched exclusively out of the stretch when he came back as a starter as well and really shortened his pregame routine uh, leading up to that. So I think I need to see another year of Carlos Carrasco before I really can buy into, uh, you know, the 1.3 ERA over the last 10 starts. You know, is that the new Carlos Carrasco? Well, if it is, then they're going to have another Cy Young winner on their hands and that would be awesome. But uh, I think because of his track record and his history, you know, I think we need to see more from him before we can start saying, you know, what we can maybe expect over the the next few years. Uh, you mentioned Kevin Cash a couple times there, so now mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I'm starting to wonder if if they'll feel the loss of him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, Mickey Callaway also gets some credit, I'm sure, for yeah. for the pitching staff. Uh, uh, you know, developing like we've mentioned a couple names that just kind of popped up out of nowhere, and there there's a lot of talent. Uh, 
possibly untapped talent or un, untapped potential on this staff. Is there a name that that you'd that you'd say keep your eye on uh, for the season to that maybe Callaway uh, or, or or something that you've noticed very early in spring training that yeah this is a guy that that maybe he's he's ready to take that next step. Well, a guy that I'm really interested to see how he um, can perform this year after his taste of the big leagues last year was TJ House. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, obviously Danny Salazar is getting a lot of the attention for that that loan available starting job, and rightly so. I mean, two years ago, this guy was pitching the wild card game for them, and you can see the raw stuff that's there and the ability um, of the, the type of power pitcher that he is. But TJ House, I mean, over their last 14 starts last year, if you compare the two side by side, um, I think he had the better ERA. Uh, really performed well and, and was one of their most consistent arms over the last uh, two, three months. And it was kind of surprising because when you watch him pitch, he's not really a hard-throwing lefty. And, you know, he kind of just, uh, I don't know, he was really impressive and really consistent. And you could tell that some of those things you can't quantify, you know, in a guy, you know, where he's, you know, just really not one to back down from a challenge and, this is a guy who a few years ago, um, uh, kind of with Mickey Calloway, Mickey Calloway had a heart to heart with him at the end of a season and heart to heart in the extent that Calloway was yelling at him pretty good at the end of the year about how he needed to really change, um, his routines in terms of his conditioning and his mentality. And they were really close to actually thinking about, you know, making him a reliever or even cutting him from the organization. And this is a kid that went home that winter. Um, and came back the next year, looked like a totally different pitcher, earned some trust in spring training, and, and rose to the point where Callaway's now the pitching coach in the big leagues, not the minor league uh, roving instructor, um, or he may have been his minor league pitching coach at the time. And, you know, and there's kind of that bond there between the two from their days in the minor league system. So I think that connection and that history uh, will be interesting to follow uh, if TJ House, you know, let's say he wins the fifth job out of spring and or even comes up and contributes to the major league level, you know, and he was so consistent. I, I'd like to see if he can carry that over and continue to be that kind of left-handed back rotation arm that every team would love to have. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, that they're fighting uh, Salazar and house are kind of fighting for that fifth spot. So it mm-hmm. sounds like uh, Gavin Floyd is locked into the rotation at the moment. What's his status and, and how's he looking? He's looked fine. He's throwing bullpens. Um, you know, they're kind of easing him into things. He's going to have a simulated game here coming up before he, you know, transitions into the actual Cactus League game. Um, but the one good thing about the uh, – he fractured his – the good thing about a fractured elbow uh, – no, I mean, he fractured his elbow last June, but the good aspect of it was is it's not as serious of an injury to return from as when you injure the ligament, which he had done in the prior year uh, requiring Tommy John. So uh, David Alcheck performed both surgeries and was pretty optimistic about the fact that when you break a bone, when it comes back, it can actually come back stronger. And he felt uh, through his throwing program over the winter, you know, as he was throwing, he said that he would check, he would get routine checkups and see the x-rays throughout the winter. And they said that they could see actual like bone um, growth and development throughout his throwing program. He's been throwing bullpens here like normal with all the other pitchers. And just through live BP the other day, uh, hitters weren't swinging, but he got in there with the batters in the box. And yeah, as of right now, I mean, they signed this guy to a major league deal and they're hoping he can contribute to the, the opening day rotation. Terry Fercone has even mentioned slotting him as high as second 
in the staff to kind of just lengthen things out, take some pressure off some of the younger guys who, you know, are a little shorter on the experience end. Uh, I mean, the guy has got the knowledge of the AL Central, and he obviously had a, I think, a five-year period where he was averaging 190 innings before those elbow injuries came into play. So they like the history of durability prior to the injury. Um, and obviously, again, going back to Callaway, uh, this is a guy who a few years ago, Indians basically signed Scott Casimir off the street, turned him into uh, a solid pitcher, and he earned himself a two-year deal and kind of returned to form in a big way. And Mickey Callaway played a huge role in that. So, you know, we'll see if uh, they can kind of have the same type of effect here with Gavin Floyd. A player who I look at kind of, I don't want to say key to the team, but if he even returns to a you know 80% of what he was a few years ago that this team can really live up to my expectations at least and that's Jason Kipnis I was going to say Kipnis yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean is there reason to believe he can be that player that was you know I'm not sure if he was at an MVP level but he was getting MVP buzz at least at one point Yeah I think what's important to remember uh, when looking at his season last year was the fact that at the end of April he did tear his oblique pretty bad and he came back uh you know i mean now looking back at it maybe he came back a little earlier than he should have and he completely admits that he wasn't right for the rest of the season and if we all you know if you remember back to 2013 what was so remarkable remarkable about watching him play was how often he would go to the opposite field with authority especially on those outside pitches and on off-speed pitches you know, he was just, you know, playing pepper with left field walls throughout the league and getting all those extra base hits. And that was something that just was gone last year. You just did not see it. Um, and it is the effectiveness against off speed and against outside pitches just totally declined. And his slugging percentage, you know, dropped dramatically. And he attributes a lot of that to playing through, uh, you know, persistent issues with that oblique. So it's kind of it's, it's hard to just look at his season. Uh, in the black and white of the the statistical line without keeping in mind that he just couldn't effectively extend and get the same type of, uh, you know, performance that he did in 2013 with the outside strikes. So I think that's something to keep in mind. So you're right. If he can get back to a percentage of what he was in 2013, you know, he looks like he's in better shape. He reported a little leaner this year than he did a year ago, and he admits that he came into camp a little too stocky, as he put it, um, in 2014, you know, and maybe that lended itself to some of the oblique issues that came up. So he got on a different program uh, over the winter, and then he injured his hand in a weight room incident, uh, had to have surgery on a, his left ring finger this past offseason, but um, he's recovered enough to be hitting again, and he's only slightly behind the rest of the guys here, probably going to make his debut a handful of games into the spring slate. But, yeah, I mean, he's an offensive catalyst. And if you can have him, uh, if you can have Borden and Kipnis and Brantley and Santana as your top four and they're all performing to their capabilities or, or to a, a high percentage of their capabilities, I mean, that's a pretty pretty formidable uh, quartet coming out of the top of the lineup there. Francisco Lindor is, uh, you know, a universal top five, top ten prospect in the game. I, I, I don't think there's, I think the chances of him breaking camp with the team is uh, zero. But, mm-hmm. but is two thousand? Are they expecting him to join the team in two thousand fifteen? Is that what they want to happen? Uh, is it would it be a stretch run type thing to kind of help out the team, or or should we expect him to be the starting shortstop by July? 
Uh, you know, I they they have Mike Vilas around, and he's a Tito favorite, and he's kind of the, that perfect stopgap. Um, you know, if they're trying to kind of buy time for more development for Lindor, who's still only 21. Uh, one thing I was looking at today actually was you know he only had 180 plate appearances at AAA, and if you look, his strikeout rate you know really climbed in comparison to his career, and his on base percentage really dropped. Um, as a result of that, and and so there was obvious there's obvious offensive growth that can still take place for a player that is so highly touted, and much of the the reason he's so highly touted is because of his defense. And everyone around the Indians will tell you that he could go to the majors right now and hold his own, especially defensively, and, and he might be able to hold his own offensively. But they just feel that there's still room for developmental growth um, at the AAA level. It's like. He's going to start there. At, uh, Jose Ramirez will be the opening day shortstop for the Indians, and he obviously is also very young. Um, so in one way, you could say, well, maybe they have a good problem on their hands. You know, looking down the road, you know, Jose Ramirez has played other positions in the past, so maybe you know he could fit in in a different role, or, or kind of eventually, if he doesn't stick as a starting shortstop, maybe move into a, a utility type role or something like that. But right now, they like him at the short shortstop position. They really like what he did uh, defensively down the stretch. Um, I think it, the sample obviously is flawed because it's not very big, but when you look at UZR 150, I think he was right up there with Simmons in terms of the majors for the amount of innings that he had. So he had showed great range and really showed up what was baseball's worst defense for the year, especially uh, when his Drupal Cabrera was at shortstop. Um, he obviously hurt their range up the middle. Uh, so they like him. They liked him in the two-hole down the stretch. His on-base percentage was around 300 overall last year, so obviously that's not an ideal guy to have near the top of the lineup. Um, but they're comfortable with him being in the starting role, at least for the start. As far as Lindor goes, I think he could break uh, into the big leagues at some point this season. But I just think for this team that really wants to contend, you know, I can imagine if something went wrong with Jose Ramirez, I could see the Indians being more content with plugging a Vilas in as the temporary starter uh, his contract is up at the end of this season, you know, and then maybe looking more towards 2016 for a guy like Lindor to, to come up and have a, a larger impact. Jordan, I I can't remember. When when did you start covering the Indians? 2011. So I was up in Toronto from uh, 05 to 10, and then I w- I've been here since 2011. Okay, so you, so you saw the transition from – uh, now I'm blanking on the previous manager. Eric, was it Wedge? Manny to, Acta, yeah. Manny oh, Acta Manny, was okay, before so, Francona. So Manny Acta to, to Francona. Mm-hmm. I, I, we're, we're probably going to see this with the Cubs, but but was was there – did you see like a complete culture change, a, a sort of – the the obviously, you know, talent trumps. You, you need the players to win. But, you know, Francona comes around. He brings some legitimacy there. He brings, a you know, a long tradition of winning in Boston. Uh, how how huge was that impact, and uh, like just how much does he impact the team? Uh, it's a huge impact, and you know I really enjoyed Manny Acta. You know, I just he was great for us reporters, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I liked the blend of you know liking his analysis and then also having some old school uh, thoughts. But you know, Tito has uh, more; he's made more of an impact in the clubhouse. You know, players, obviously, there's the immediate respect for what he's accomplished as a manager um, and the fact that he's a former player and, and things like that. Um, but also, I mean, he's not a, he's a guy that's not afraid to go into that clubhouse 
and, you know, hop up on the counter and talk to the rookie, you know, and the next thing, you know, he's talking to the veteran and he's making his way and he's joking around and lets these guys have fun. And, you know, I think a couple of years ago, there was a live chicken on the, in the out in the outfield when the Indians were trying to break a slump. And, you know, the other day we saw Carlos Carrasco walking through the practice wearing a, a Gene Simmons kiss mask. I mean, some players are allowed to have fun. Uh, but Tito, as he said multiple times is, you know, as long as they're, they're playing the game the right way and respecting the game between the lines. He doesn't mind if his players, you know, goof off and have a good time. And it's one of the reasons he brought in a guy like Micah Vilas, who's as big of a goofball as there is out here. You know, all you got to do is kind of listen a little to figure out what field he's on because he's always chirping. You know, but my point is he brought in these guys like Avilas, a guy like Swisher signed with Cleveland uh, par- partly because Francona had come here. It had been years since you know, kind of a big free agent had signed with the Indians. And when Francona came here, you saw Swisher sign. You saw Michael Bourne sign. And, you know, even with the down years they've had over the last couple of years at the time, I mean, those were two pretty big, high-profile signings. And you, you hear a lot of guys who come in, the non-roster guys, uh, guys who come in on shorter deals. One of the first reasons, you know, they'll cite is they signed here because Terry Francona's here and because of the reputation he's gained uh, around the league for the atmosphere that he creates for players. So I think there was a total culture shift. Uh, I think one one thing that really illustrates it, one of the first things Terry Francona did when he became the manager with the Indians was his office in Progressive Field in Cleveland had a uh, cinder block wall uh, that blocked his view to the hallway, which is just a short walk down the hall from the from the player's clubhouse. And he got into his office, you know, the first couple of days and he just felt too uh, confined. So he asked them to knock down a huge section of the wall and put in a window because he wanted to see who was walking by. He wanted to keep his door open. He wanted to be able to have people come in and out and feel welcome, you know, to, to kind of, you know, bridge that gap from the clubhouse to the manager's office. So, I mean, he literally knocked down the wall between the manager's office and the clubhouse. Uh, but I just think that in, in short is, you know, the perfect example of his personality when it comes to, you know, dealing with a team and dealing with players. So, yeah, I think there's an, an immediate there was an immediate culture shift here and for the better. And, you know, it took a team that was close to 100 losses in 2012 and turned them into the top wild card seed in 2013. I mean, there was an immediate impact. Well, I mean, it's fascinating that the things that you just said sound a lot like what's happening on the north side and the things that Joe Madden are saying has said mm-hmm. during the offseason since he's been introduced. It, it's interesting. And, and like you said, nothing against Maniac and nothing against Ricky Renteria, but there's there's just something that the players will buy into when it's a guy like Madden or Frank Ona. They've, they've proven it. They've done it. They've, and, you know, the, the players are will, will certainly embrace those types of things. Uh, as far as a storyline or event, something that you're looking forward to, maybe not the key to the Indian season, but you as a reporter, someone that's going to be covering this team every day, what are you most excited to? What are you most looking forward to in 2015? Man, that's that's tough. I mean, that's a wide net there. Uh, you know, I, I think honestly the, the idea of not making wholesale changes, not giving in, to kind of the pressure of seeing your rivals making move after move after move and kind of sticking by your guns with what you believe in. Well, it's not always the most popular route. Uh, that's what the Indians have done. And I'll be really fascinated to see if it works. You know, the fact that they've committed so much 
to some of these guys that they've developed, signed so many of these guys to long-term extensions. You know, maybe they're going to look to sign Kluber to an extension before opening day. Uh, you know, they've signed Kibnis, they've signed Brantley, they've signed Gomes, these guys that, you know, are kind of developing here into the types of players that other teams are trying to acquire and, and overspending for. Um, so I'm really fascinated to see how this develops this season and even 2016, you know, to kind of see how this team grows and develops uh, given the steps that this team's made, you know, in some of those low profile trades, as we've mentioned and and things like that. I mean, they're kind of taking, you know, a different approach to it. I think they entered this spring or this off season with 23 of last year's 25 already under contract. It was a really unique, fascinating position to be in for a team that just missed the playoffs um, you know, despite a lot of issues last year. So, so we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of question marks in every single area, a lot of health concerns with guys already like Swisher and, you know, Moss coming back from the hip thing and Floyd having the, the two elbow injuries over the last couple of years, Kipnis with the oblique, Bourne has had his hamstring issues. You know, there's a lot of young players that they're relying on in prominent roles. So you can see plenty of chinks in the armor where things could fall apart, but you know, as we mentioned at the top here, you can also see why so many people are projecting uh, big things for this team. And I think that's going to be what's going to be fun to watch. Uh, Jordan, before I let you go, why don't you let the listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and where they can read your work? Yeah, uh, you know, I write uh, predominantly for Indians.com. Some of my stuff will be on MLB.com. Twitter, I'm at ML Bastion, so M-L-B-A-S-T-I-A-N. And then uh, I also got a little Instagram work account, Bastion MLB, you know, so you can see some photos I take throughout the year and down here at spring and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm at. Nice. Thanks so much for your time, Jordan. That's Jordan Bastion, uh, Indians beat writer for MLB.com. I'm Sahadev Sharma. You can follow me on Twitter at Sahadev Sharma. Jordan, again, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right, thanks for listening to our Indians Preview Podcast. You can send us email questions for tomorrow's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join the active conversation at our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. We do read and appreciate all of the reviews. And you can support our sponsor, the baseballreference.com play index by going to baseballreference.com subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow.